Last week we looked at the scene, but we concentrated when we did on the jewel in the heart of the narrative, uh, the story of Jesus' interaction with the woman who touched him. Today we want to take a devotional look at the events that follow or surround that event. Now, you've already read how Matthew reports uh, the arrival of the ruler of the synagogue, and he comes to Jesus and kneels down before him. That the same event is recorded by Mark and Luke. If you turn over to Mark chapter 5, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 and verse 22, we read this. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. Luke reports it this way in Luke chapter 8. So now turning over to Luke chapter 8 of his gospel, verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. As we bring in this record from the synoptic, other synoptic gospels, we begin to get more information. Added to what we know from Matthew, we now have a name for the ruler of the synagogue, um, and we also have the information that he is not just a ruler, but he's a ruler of the synagogue, making him more identifiable. And, of course, this is important in the context of the critics of the gospel because some say that um, the stories don't match together, but they certainly do. They're just giving us more information. And if anything, they're not making this man more obscure, but more specific for identification. So where Matthew says it's just a ruler, uh, Luke and Mark say it's this ruler, this particular one who, whose daughter was raised. Um, we also learn that this dying daughter is 12 years of age. Um, reading in some of the uh, reports or narratives, we would think that she was just a, a little tiny girl, but she's 12. We also know that there's a throng moving with Jesus through the streets, including his disciples. And, of course, on the way, we have the look of Jesus on the woman who touched him and the exchange between, between them that we considered last week. But we find that it was just a momentary pause and that Jesus then pressed on to the ruler's home to the side of his dying daughter. So those are the kind of the, the, the basic background information that we have. Now, the arrival at the ruler's house is also recorded by all three for us. And so in Matthew, it reads like this. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Mark puts it this way. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. 
<clears throat> he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were uh, with him and went in where the child was. <coughs> Excuse me. So in Mark, we get a little more of a feel for what's going on here. How Jesus appears in the house, what he sees when he enters the house, and how he reacts to it. And the fact that he puts them out. And we'll look at that again in a moment here. And then we go to Luke. And in Luke chapter 8 and verse 49, Luke says also, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. So it's this warning, or not warning, but this uh, testimony that she's already dead and there's no sense for Jesus to bother to come. We see that recorded in both Mark and Luke. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now, through this further testimony, we get what we might call some preliminary uh, information that gives us an opportunity to think about all that's going on here. We already mentioned this girl is 12 years old, the girl who is not dead. Um, she is at that point at the age of Jewish womanhood, which means she has come to the age where she's eligible for marriage. And she's reached that point in her life which adds to the sorrow and the consternation of the moment among the people because she has just gotten to the point where she can marry and, and enter into the adult life of the Jewish community, and she's dead. So that's a factor. We also know, obviously, that her father was a man of some distinction as one of the rulers of the synagogue at Capernaum that was a, a large uh, synagogue, and it was well known, and uh, there were many people who would be aware of who he was. We assume that the girl must have either suddenly fallen ill or take, taken a sudden turn for the worse because her father didn't seek out Jesus when he first arrived in Capernaum, but actually waits a day before he comes with in this sense of urgency. So although it's not absolutely certain, it seems to be that he, that Jesus, that the ruler rushes to Jesus' side because the situation has suddenly worsened in regards to his daughter. Alfred Edersheim points out this. Christ's miracles were intended to aid, not to supersede faith, to direct to the person and teachings of Christ as that which proved the benefit to be real and divine not to excite the carnal Jewish expectancies of the people, but to lead in humble discipleship to the feet of Jesus. He says that because of the exchange that goes on 
when the messengers from the house come and say, don't bother Jesus any longer, she's already dead. And Jesus tells him, no, just have faith and believe. And then moves forward to her healing. It's possible also, though not certain, that this man may have been one of the witnesses to the restoring of the centurion's servant earlier in Capernaum. Uh, We read in Luke, this is in Luke chapter 7 and verses 3 through 6, when the centurion from Capernaum heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. And it's possible that this man was, as a ruler in the synagogue, was one of the elders of the Jews who went on behalf of the centurion to see Jesus. And we read that they came to Jesus and they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. So he could have been a witness to these things, been been called on by this ruler and others to go uh, to the centurion's house and then saw him raise this man up. And that may be part of why he came to Jesus in this uh, situation. Now, the ruler described his daughter as being at the last gasp of death, uh, the last gasp of breath before death. That's the way he describes his daughter before the messengers come. And after the delay occasioned by the woman who touched Jesus, um, she expired. And by the time the party makes its way through the throng to the house of the girl, this home is already filled with family, friends, professional mourners, and musicians all preparing for the funeral. Now, as Edersheim points out, that event, though they may, uh, excuse me, those kinds of events, even though they may fall out naturally, occur under the hand of divine providence and purpose. That's obviously the case here. We see Jesus, the, the ruler coming, getting Jesus to come to him. He starts on his way. He pauses to deal with the woman who touches his garment. And then he moves on, and by the time he gets there, the girl is not only dead, but the house is full of mourners. And what Ersheim is saying is this is the natural order of things as they unfold, but God has a purpose in how that natural order unfolds. Now, as in the case of the woman just healed in the streets, there's so much to consider here. And I'm sure that in just reading the events, you know, questions are arising in your minds and curiosity about all that takes place. But in this particular series, we have a specific aim. And that aim that we have in mind is to reflect on what Jesus saw as these events, as he observed these things, what he saw with his incarnate eyes. And so when he enters this house, we're told by all three of the gospel writers that he sees this mournful chaos going on in the house. There are pipers and wailers. Um, This was more or less a rather chaotic scene. 
Um, it's Matthew who tells you that when Jesus saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he says to them, go away, go away. Mark says that Jesus saw a commotion and the people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? And so we're going to put those two things together. Why are you doing this? Go away. And Luke says that all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. So you want to kind of try to get the scene in your mind here. The house is filled with men and women, and perhaps even children, making what all three describe as a great commotion or tumult. They are keeping up a stir or a noise, as it were, a deafening sound to assure that mourning was being heard for the girl. You invited these people into your home because you wanted everybody to know that yours was a house of mourning. So you had these pipers, these wailers, all that was going on. The flutists are piping, the people are weeping and wailing loudly, and there was quiet sobbing, but the wailing was equivalent to what, for want of a better term, might call the rebel yell used by uh, southern troops during the war between the states. Um, the word used by Mark is a, a word that has both uh, a meaning, but also the sound is part of the meaning. And so what's being said here is, you ever heard that before? You've probably heard that in, in looking at uh, scenes from the Middle East even now. And those, that's what they're doing. They're, they're mourning with that sound, which is the sound of mourning. And the way that these mourners would do it, especially the professional ones, is uh, I'll describe for you in a moment. Matthew Henry says, the loudest grief is not always the greatest. Rivers are most noisy when they run shallow. And so these professional mourners were the loudest probably in the house, but that doesn't mean that they were really mourning the death of this girl. They were either paid to do it or were hoping to be paid to do it. So you had both of those things going on at this time in history where you had people that were paid to come in and mourn and make that noise, but then you also had people that showed up at your house and stood around and made the noise hoping that later on you'd tip them for coming and, and mourning for you. So, but it's all intended to give the impression that there's great sorrow. And all of it was in preparation for what has been called uh, the pageantry of the common funeral of the day. The flutes on this occasion, uh, they were the flutes for the dead, they were called. And these were employed especially, it appears, at the death of children, and their mournful or plaintive sound kind of aided in the grieving. And they would be humming in the background. I mentioned the mourners and their way of mourning <laughs> um, was uh, unique. They were a status symbol. The more mourners you could pay to be at your funeral, the, obviously the more status you had in the community. 
Um, it was important to the deceased family that, 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 was, that you had your, your mourners present. Researchers have discovered these mourners would make one long continuous sound until their breath was exhausted and then they would end with a deep and sorrowful sob. So they take a deep breath, do that, as long as they could, and then they go, and, and sob at the end. And the rabbis recommended that even the poorest of families should hire at least, at least two flute players and one mourner. Even if you couldn't afford anything, you had to have at least two flute players and a mourner at your house when somebody died. In the East, there was and is, but little repression of the feelings in mourning. There was, on the contrary, a studied outward expression of all that was inwardly felt, and very often of more than was really experienced, says Morrison in his commentary. Now we add to that uh, Albert Barnes, and he says, the seeing of the virtues of the deceased, the recounting of his or her acts, dwelling on his or her beauty, strength, or learning, on the comforts of the family and home, and then in doleful streams they would ask the dead why he or she left the family and friends. So you have to picture this all going on. You've got this crowd of people there, some probably friends, some family, some paid, some perhaps not paid, neighbors. You've got them doing the yelling and the sobbing. You've got the people with the flutes playing the flute in the background. And then you have these singers who are singing all the virtues of the person who's dead and then asking them plaintively, why have you left us? Why have you left us and gone away and left us here? And all that's going on when Jesus walks in to this home. And the gospel writers are very careful to make sure we understand that this is a commotion. It's a tumult. This is not a, a, an orchestrated, organized kind of grieving. It is a wild kind of grieving, chaotic kind of, kind of grieving. And if all this seems a bit rushed to you and me, because she's just been announced to be dead, and all of a sudden all these people are in the house, well, it does sound uh, particularly odd to our Western modern minds, but it was a matter of, of course, law among the Jews that burials be carried out as quickly as possible. So you had to act quickly, as quickly as you could. Honor of the dead demands that the proper preparation for a coffin and shrouds be made and that relatives and friends put their, uh, put their last, or pay their last respects, excuse me, and that's from uh, one of the Jewish rabbis at the time. Even then, however, only a few hours should elapse, according to rabbinic law. So that's what's going on when Jesus enters. Now, when Jesus sees all this, when he takes it in with his eyes, all this commotion and this pathetic activity uh, that was usual, with his usual authority and command, he orders them to go away. And in the way that Matthew puts it, there's no decorum here. This isn't Jesus saying, please, please, this is unnecessary. Won't you please just go outside and leave the family alone? 
No, he says, go away or leave. And his reason is, she's not dead. She's just sleeping, so go away. And there's not a sense of impatience there, but this is not necessary, all of this. And when Jesus suggests that their antics are unnecessary because she merely sleeps, those in attendance are so certain that she is truly dead that they respond with coarse mockery as they laugh at him. In fact, they were so sure that they sent word to the ruler actually before Jesus even came saying, don't bother him any longer because there's nothing he can do. She's dead. So give up that idea and just come home and join us in the morning. And when Jesus arrives and sees the mourners and all that's going on, he just, without any hesitation, says, leave, go away. Now, why are these people ejected like this? And we can only make some suggestions as to why that might be. But we can certainly say that there are at least two reasons. First, they were no longer needed because this was not going to be a house of mourning. It was going to be a house filled with rejoicing. And secondly, their mockery of Jesus uh, showed that they were unfit witnesses to what was about to happen. If they had just questioned why they weren't needed anymore or had responded in, in just falling quiet and saying, yes, why, what, what is it you want us to do? But they laugh him to scorn. Their response showed that they weren't in harmony with the spirit of the ruler or any other sincere believer. Remember, the ruler came to Jesus and said to him, if you'll come, you can heal her. You can bring her back to life. Now, whether he understood that in the full sense of what actually happened or not, we don't know. But he at least expressed this confidence in Christ's ability to heal. But these people, when they're confronted with the idea that she may just be sleeping and could be raised by Jesus, their response is scorn. Just scorn. He invited the Savior convinced that he could raise the dead, they laughed at Christ because they didn't believe he could do anything about the dead. They laughed him to scorn. And, and I know that it's not in either of the passages that we read, but that's one of the, this is one of the weak spots in uh, the modern translation, the ESV translation. It takes that idea of laughing to scorn and reduces it to simply laughing. But the idea is laughing to scorn. It's laughing down on somebody. You're mocking them in your laugh. As too many still virtually do when some of Christ's wondrous words concerning life and death are repeated, says Morrison. So they're thrust out. And you want to get the force of that too. And that comes to us in one of the other gospels. Not that they're just told to leave. They're pushed out. They're, they're pushed from the room, pushed from the house. They were not in a proper state to be witnesses of the coming solemnity, where stunning din prevails, and especially loud artificial din, there is little scope for the exercise 
either of reason or of devotion, says Morrison. And that's the case here. So as we wind this down, just a few things to reflect on in the context of, of what, how we're looking at this. How must this have looked to the eyes of Jesus when he walks into this house and sees this circus going on surrounding the death of this little girl? The, the flutists in one corner, or flautists, the, uh, the people yelling and screaming in another corner, people singing over here, the house crowded with these people. We can't say specifically how it must have appeared to him, but we can say that it certainly was in stark contrast with all the scenes of heaven, where death has no place, and where there is only life and joy and peace. This mournful music, this bitter wailing, this noisy and chaotic reaction to death and the sorrow and the despair it raised was something that uh, was not to be found in heaven. The Lord who had said through Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verses 2 and 4, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to, the house, than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of, fa of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. To him who through, uh, said that through, through Solomon, Jesus is looking on this scene, and it's, it's the, those things are not there, the kind of true and sincere sorrow that comes with death. Jesus was seeing this played out in real time before him and beholding it with his incarnate eye. And we don't want to dare speculate on the holiness of that scene, but we might reflect, I think, on how the one in whom all life dwelled stood in the midst of the house of that morning on that day, surrounded by all this noise and commotion. It's just uh, something to reflect on. The second thing that I think we can observe is Jesus watches all of this, and yet there is a lack of interest in any real remedy for death. And that would have been appalling, I think, to anyone who knew that the Son of Life was standing in the midst of that group. Psalm 68, verse 20 says, Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. In the eyes of the Savior, this all showed a certain desperation on their part. But in his eyes, David Dixon says, he will have nothing counted desperate which he takes in hand. Yea, he will even have death itself deemed but as a sleep in comparison with divine power. In Jeremiah 32, verse 27, it says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And you see, there's not even an interest in where does life come from? How do we find life in the face of all this death? That's not in their minds or in their hearts. 
Because when they hear she's dead, they, they say, don't even bother to have him come. She's dead. There's nothing he can do. There's nothing anybody can do. This is over. She's gone. And there's no interest even to find out when Jesus says, no, have faith and believe. She, she will live. There's no interest in that among them. We go back to the fact that the majority of those who were gathered at the house had no hope. They didn't see Jesus as the one who could and would conquer death. They sent word after her death, um, telling him not to bother to come. When he got to the house and explained that she was not dead forever, but asleep, they were so certain otherwise that they laughed, him, laughed at him and did it with a, a stinging response. But perhaps most poignant of all, note what a contrast there was between the reaction to this little maiden's death and Christ's own death. He would hear this laughing to scorn again at him. And it would come at his own death because they laughed him to scorn as he was crucified. At this little girl's death, there is at least this outward um, regard and respect being paid to her. There are people playing the flute. There are people publicly wailing. There are people sobbing. There are people singing his praises. When the Savior died, there would be no pipers. There would be no professional mourners at his death for sinners. There would only be jeers among the sobs of a few weeping friends. The Savior is foreshadowed in the words of the weeping prophet Jeremiah, where in Lamentations 1.12 he said, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. You know, whenever anyone dies prematurely, quote-unquote, or in their relative innocence, as it's sometimes described, especially at a young age, it causes a deep degree of sorrow and of pain. And that's obviously exhibited here. They said she's just come to her womanhood. This is supposed to be a time of celebration and rejoicing, and instead it's a, time, a day of death. And so all this sorrow, outward expression of sorrow, gathers around her. And that's what we anticipate. When we hear of the death of a child, it does raise that kind of reaction in us because they are young and because they are, in a sense, innocent. Well, sadly, except by grace, few ever consider this in regard to the sinless Son of God. His unjust execution was not premature. It was wholly unjust. It was the death brought on too early. It was a death that was nothing short of murder. It was wholly unnecessary. 
If ever there was a murder to mourn, it is his. And yet you see the contrast. He looks at this moment and sees all this over this 12-year-old, looks ahead and sees that there'll be none to pity him except the few that are present at the cross, but they're all but silent at the moment. Most are jeering and loud in their mockery of him. But as Peter said to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you have crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That one God raised up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Chapter 3 says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The third thing I would ask you to think about here is that what looks like death to us appears as sleep to him. There's a debate among critics about the state of the girl at the time, whether she was truly dead or not. But it seems that we can settle the matter for ourselves by just a few quick observations. First, everyone present at the house before Jesus arrives and attending to this girl is convinced beyond uh, doubt that she's dead in the clinical sense. Nobody believes it. They all laugh at him. Secondly, Jesus speaks of death both throughout his ministry and in his word as sleep. And that's appropriate, beloved, to the one who, by his summons at any time, can restore life. You recall that he referred to Lazarus' death in the same terms. He's not dead, he's sleeping. But everybody knew he was dead. The very fact that all three of the synoptic gospel writers takes up this narrative is evidence that something extraordinary was taking place here. It gives evidence that the gospel writers regarded the raising of the dead as not only beyond the ordinary range of messianic activity, but as something miraculous, even among the miracles of Christ. And this also is evidential, at least so far as to prove that the writers record the event not lightly, but with full knowledge of the demand which it makes on our faith. So it is when he who is the resurrection and the life is in the scene, it's like people are sleeping, not like they're dead. If you know that you can awaken someone from their sleep, you don't look at it as anything but sleep, right? And he knows he has the power to raise anyone that he pleases, to bring them up from death. And their condition at best under those circumstances is described as sleep. And that brings us to the fact that we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him 
those who have fallen asleep. So you see, even Paul is using the term asleep for death. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I would leave you with the encouraging picture here of Jesus saying, she's not dead, she's asleep. And then going over her and raising her up by the power that he has so that we in the face of death won't mourn like those that have no hope, but give thanks like those who have a Savior, like Jesus Christ. Father, bless these thoughts to our hearts this afternoon. We pray, Lord, they may attend us through the day and through the week. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our thoughts, our contemplations, our rejoicing, that we have not been left to ourselves, that you have redeemed us through the blood of the Lamb, and given us the promise of life through his resurrection. These things, Lord, we ask for, we plead for, in Jesus' name, amen.